You're listening to The Pseudo Show on Sunrise Robot. Find out how you can help us out at sunriserobot.net slash support. Welcome to episode 18 of The Pseudo Show. I'm your host, Mike Edwards, and I'm here with performance, installation, and sound artist and musician, Colby Wilson. Hello. <laughs> with that kind of introduction. Um, I thought, so Cole, you've been... Uh, the resident artist here at Platform for a while now. So how did you come to, to be in Denver? So for the past um, three years, I've been working on this record, which is about the ancient Carthaginian general Hannibal Barca and his role in the Second Punic War between Carthage and Rome in 200 BCE. <laughs> and the principal engineer that I have been working with to sort of finish up tracking and, and, and mixing with lives in Denver. So I, l- last year I was looking for some sort of institution um, that I could do an artist residency at where I could focus primarily on, on that project and um, platform fit the bill. So I spent months putting together an application and wound up getting it. Which is great, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so yeah, I, I came out here to finish this record, and so we're recording in platform. If you're hearing footsteps yeah. <laughs> on the ceiling, so this is yeah. your immersive, yeah, <laughs> surround <not> experience, pacing <laughs> pensively. <laughs> That's cool. And you've been working on a, a bowed piano, yeah. So um, I actually wound up wrapping up the the majority of the record before getting out here so that afforded me some time and space to uh, work on another idea and um, at a previous um, installation in Chicago back in 2013 I, I had attempted to build my very first bowed piano and it was just um, an astounding failure it had <laughs> maybe like a a two percent success rate um <laughs> <laughs> and I wound up pretty much just like covering yeah. it in like plaster just to, I just wanted to bury it. So um, for the unfamiliar, like what goes into making a bowed piano and what is it? <laughs> okay. So, so, um, this version, um, it is an upright spinet piano where I have essentially removed all of the mutes and the hammers and I, I purchased, a bunch of these little teeny tiny micro gear rotary motors. They're all about the size of a quarter. And um, they're like these little spindles that, that spin. And um, I put, I super glued little wooden toy car wheels to them. And I coated the wooden wheels in cello rosin. And then I made these custom fabricated cassettes that hold these little motors um, uh, parallel to piano strings and the wooden wheels actually touch the strings um, uh, in a perpendicular fashion so that when the motor is engaged, the little wooden wheel rotates and rubs the string and the rosin on the wheel uh, creates friction between the wheel and the string. And so then the the string begins to resonate and you get a bowing effect. And um, the way it's set up is the motor's um, are, are electric. And so there's a power source and there, the motors all go to the same ground. And then the positive current is, 
soldered to the corresponding key for each motor. So as you um, depress a key, that key makes contact with a bar that the positive end of the power source is connected to, which completes a circuit. So it tells that motor to turn on, which bows that note that corresponds Mm -hmm. to that key. And then when you take your finger off of the key, the circuit is broken and then that motor turns off. So it's an entirely mechanical Mm -hmm. setup. Um, so yeah, that's that's what it's that an is. interesting effect because you were showing it to me earlier, and uh, there's kind of it's almost like a a synth sound in a way. It's it's got a an attack and decay to it. It's got a, almost a tremolo rhythm. Yeah, it's it's a really wild sounding instrument. It's actually different than my initial intention was to have, which was to have a consistent. Uh, bowed note that doesn't have that sort of rhythmic mm-hmm. pattern. I still really enjoy it. Uh, I think it's a really pleasant sound. Um, but this next version of it that that's going to exist, I'm hoping to get closer to that. That's interesting. So I was trying to look up some history of other attempts at bowed pianos, and the only thing I really found was in the 70s, Stephen Scott basically assembled an army of people that would grab fish... <laughs> Yeah. Line and they would just manually bow on the piano and, and have some kind of crazy arrangement. I didn't know if there, there's obviously some gaps in between that and modern day little more DIY projects to, to build mechanical bowed Yeah, pianos. that's actually, that's the impetus for all of this. Was I saw a bowed piano ensemble play at the College of Santa Fe back in 2006. And, um, I, I thought that was such a beautiful sound. But I wanted to be able to do all of it like myself, yeah. you know, <laughs> anytime that I wanted. And, um, yeah, so my, my, the initial, um, concept that I came up with was I, I had created this, this band essentially, um, this continuous stream of, of, violent bow hair that I had braided together so that it was flat on one side and then all of the knots that, of the braids were on the other. And then I had this track of this bicycle wheel that I had coated the inside of the wheel with cello rosin so that it would be consistently re-rosining itself. Then I ran the bow hair behind the strings, but I was only able to get the first and the last (laughs) string to bow because you, you would need it to be arched, you know, and, and the amount of torque that, um, was necessary physically in that situation would either break the bow hair mm-hmm. or burn up the motor, which I experienced both. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so finally I decided to consult some engineers. Um, and then not too long after that failure, I saw this bowed piano. It's called like a a violin violoncello or something like that it's it's actually this this musician this european i forget I forget where he's from he took these schematics that uh, da vinci actually came up with of course yeah of course <laughs> oh da vinci you beat me again <laughs> and it works his version works beautifully and is incredibly elegant and sounds beautiful um and it's actually pedal powered, obviously. Um, and 
as far as I know, this is the only electronic bowed piano that exists. If somebody out there hears that statement and, and is, and, and essentially is like, I've been making them for years. Please reach out to me. I would love to, as would I, to glean I want to any wisdom. To yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, so tell us more about this Hannibal Barca project. Sure. So, um, I, yeah, three years ago I was working on a song that was, uh, you know, about my own narrative, my feelings, and I, it felt so contrived and so forced and so played. It made, it actually, it actually made me sick. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought to myself, I cannot, I can't sing another line. I can't spend another moment talking about how I feel. (laughs) And I put my guitar down and and picked up my computer and started playing words with friends. (laughs) And words of friends suggested that I play a game with an old friend from high school who I hadn't caught up with since, since, uh, graduating. And so I just went to his Facebook page and was looking through it. And, and I read this quote in his quote section, which was, we will find a way or we will make one Hannibal. And my dad used to say that when I was younger, because my dad was a really big Patton fan and General Patton believed that he was the reincarnation of all the greatest generals of all time, you know, like, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> yeah. And, um, he claimed that the way he was able to defeat the, um, Nazi tank commander in North Africa was because he was using, he knew that he was using, um, Hannibal's, elephant uh, cavalry strategies and techniques and that he was able to identify them as his own and so intuitively knew how to defeat him. So I guess you could, you could technically treat that as empirical evidence depending on (laughs) what kind of mood you're in. Um, But uh, so, so yeah, I, I remembered, you know, vaguely elephants and the Alps. And so I just, you know, I cruised over to Wikipedia and I read everything about Hannibal and then I read everything about Hannibal's dad and then everything about the Punic Wars. And I had just gotten a library card. So I was like, I'm going to go to the library and just get everything mm-hmm. that I can. So I went and got all the books on Hannibal that I could. And uh, like halfway through the first book that I was reading, I was just like this, like, I want to write about this. This is a remarkable story. Um, and also totally, uh, contrary to anything that I've written about before, you know, all of my, all of the subjects that I've talked about have either been about sort of like, you know, um, love and unrequited love and, and what it means to feel discontented as an American and the type of society Mm -hmm. that we live in and, um, uh, white guilt and, you know. Um, uh, you know, just the, my own personal narrative. So it was really refreshing to start talking about what would it be like to be responsible for carrying out the task of conquering another nation, (laughs) you know, that's, that's imposing on, on your power. And what would it be like to be raised essentially to be a supreme weapon, and also to sort of fit into this idea notion of being chosen by these like, you know, like arcane gods, mm-hmm. you know, these, these, uh, ancient archaic entities. And, 
and and he oh, he's just such a fascinating uh, individual because he actually was a self-proclaimed atheist. He, which made him even more like terrifying, yeah. you know, to the Romans like, Oh, he's doing this in spite of the gods, you know? And, um, and anyways, it became, it was a fascinating story. And so I sat down and, um, superstitiously, I just decided that if I was going to go down this path that I needed to essentially ask his permission. And, uh, even if it was just like a symbolic thing and I sat down at a typewriter and I wrote this letter asking, uh, for Hannibal to come and help. And my girlfriend at the time was like, dude, <laughs> you're inviting something really like kind of like dark and scary into your world. And I was just like, no, I need to do it. And, uh, um, and then, yeah, that night I, I wrote the first three pieces of the album. And, um, and then since then, as I continued to read and, and, discover things. I continued to write songs and, and, um, and I would go back and I would edit things. And then I decided that the album one needed to be in chronological order. So all of the, all of the songs, um, you know, the, their order was predetermined. Mm -hmm. And I also decided that I needed to dynamically, I needed to follow the dynamics of his experience. And so all of the, compositions are informed by uh, the results of a battle, the personalities present for that historical event, um, the cultures represented, the circumstances um, of, you know, his, his uh, of geography and, and mm-hmm. um, of weather. And, and so, yeah, the, the instruments that are used and the um, tonal qualities and the musical stylings, just the all, all of the aesthetics and the 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 layout of these songs is de- was determined by everything mm-hmm. that took place. And so one of the one of one of the other. Th- things that I wanted to do was I, I wanted to employ Hannibal's military techniques and tactics from a creative um, standpoint. So one of the major obstacles that Hannibal had to navigate was, you know, once he had crossed the Alps over into Italy, he was unaided, you know, um, once he, once he got, got there it was he was his only resource and so he had to find a way to consistently feed roughly 20,000 soldiers and um and and all of their animals and and water and shelter and and then he also had to be able to defeat you know an, an a never-ending onslaught of of soldiers that did have an infrastructure and um so metaphorically, what was that like in your project? So what I decided Unless you to- had actual soldiers attacking. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I had this time machine. I just <laughs> went back and collected Greeks and Iberians and Celts and Gauls. Um, no, what I decided to do was I decided to record to start recording the album by going on the road. 
and going on tour for three months. And the only recording um, that I could, the only recording that I would do was with what was ever available wherever I wound up. I would use whatever instruments were there and I would work with whomever was willing to work with me. And I wound up doing everything from recording on like cell phones and tape players to working in really nice, like high end recording studios, you know, in, in Pro Tools or to, you know, um, eight track reel to reels. Um, even on like individual songs might be a mixture of these oh, yeah. contexts. And- yeah, exactly. And so the very first draft of this album is just traveling around the country and recording things in chronological order. And then once I had gotten my first version of the record, then um, I started undergoing another process because I became interested in the difference between fable, fact, myth, and truth. And essentially what it boils down to is we have absolutely no idea what actually transpired in any sort of ancient historical context. Now you'll, you'll meet lots of historians who claim to mm-hmm. have a hold and, and, uh, and, um, and, uh, an, an objective truth insofar as the history is concerned, but it just boils down to the fact that none of us were there. So we don't, we don't know. And mm-hmm. so what, one of the things I got interested in as I was, as I was reading about Hannibal was, um, the lineage and the lineage of this information and of the story. So initially there was the, um, the, the documentarian who was traveling with Hannibal's, uh, military. And those documents actually were lost. So we have, we have no account of that. There is an account of someone <laughs> taking account, but that account doesn't exist and no one knows That's who what that you call individual. hearsay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Ancient hearsay. Um, and so. Well, that's an interesting topic anyway, fact versus myth. And, you know, like one of the things that just thinking about your Hannibal project, I I was thinking to ask about was, you know, there's facts. And even if you know certain facts, there's also context and situatedness and, oh, yeah. And and like immersiveness. And and what makes a project like this interesting is how it can speak to more than just the the rare, the bare facts of a situation. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the the first account that we have here, I have it with me. You've got Polybius, who's a Greek, who is a political prisoner that um, essentially he was kind of like a higher up um, from Greece and was treated essentially like a Roman citizen. I mean, he couldn't vote or anything like that. And he was free to roam the city, but he wasn't allowed to leave the city. So he took up writing an account of um, Roman history and using that, uh, found a way to go outside of Rome to go and interview people to talk about, uh, Rome's history. And so he sort of had like a, like a military escort taking him all over the ancient Mediterranean. He actually got to interview, um, soldiers who were in Hannibal's army, who were old men at that, at that time. So you have that document and then about like roughly a hundred years later, you get Livy, who is 
the Hollywood <laughs> jingoist Roman historian. Um, History re- written by the winners. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's so funny, man. It's so funny. He's so passionate. And um, definitely casts his own like nationalistic, prideful light on all of the situations that are way different than how, in in, in a lot of instances, than how like Polybius um, purports things to have to have uh, taken place. But so so there, yeah, you have like you have what happened. You have how Hannibal's soldiers tell the story to Polybius, who mm-hmm. has his own agenda which is then translated by Livy to be cast in a very pro uh, uh, Roman light. And then, you know, the, the dark ages take place and you have, you know, like the burning of the library of Alexandria and you have all of these monks essentially like hiding texts. So you lost a lot of Livy and Polybius and some of the only things to have survived were the, the accounts of the um, the Punic Wars, and uh, really nothing else about Carthage is is known aside from like moments in in poetry and, and things like that, because it pretty much after at the end of the Third Punic War, Rome burnt let it burn for two weeks and then dismantled it brick by brick and then leveled the hill that the churches stood on and then salted Mm -hmm. the earth so that nothing would grow. So there's nothing about Carthage, but anyways, um, then, then you have these, these monks, uh, and, uh, translating, um, these ancient texts into the text because, because now all of those ancient texts are gone. They, they don't exist anywhere. And modern day historians are now using those translated texts by those monks who also have their own agenda. Right. And now I'm reading, you know, books by folks like Robert O'Connell and um, Andreas Kluth and John Provost um, and Cecil Tor, um, who also have their own agendas. Right. And now I'm telling the story, and I've, I've, <laughs> I, you know, j- admittedly, I am picking and choosing. Oh, I'm sorry about the. <laughs> the pop i'm picking and choosing all of my favorite moments in this narrative um as told different by by different historians you know because right. with queen dido's uh, suicide you have most people um saying that she fell on a sword but there's a few accounts where she coats herself in sacred oils and self-emulates and that to me is way more powerful because that suggests that Prince Aeneas was able to look back and see the right. smoke of her burning body, you know, of, of her anguish and her love and the smoke being this, this ominous marker of, of a, of a curse, you know, of, um, of wrath. Right. And that to me is way more compelling than, um, falling on a sword i mean not just i mean that's obviously a pretty (laughs) bold move um however i think i think that that the uh the former is more is more interesting so there's lots of moments throughout this this history where you'll come across a number of historians who are like well actually most people believe that hannibal crossed the col de saint bernard but i think that hannibal crossed the alps via the col de la traverse set 
Um, just because of this, this one book that I've read where it's by this crazy guy named John, John Provost who actually like spent 10 years in the Alps in a Jeep and mountain climbing gear, just like with like books in his backpack, you know, like, um, trying to figure out exactly the, the route. And I think he actually has the most sort of compelling evidence. Yeah, this is all really fascinating. Kind of, you know, is a, a nice little intro lesson on how epistemology is huge in history and, and trying to interpret documents and establish what happened. And um, just like you know, the the person that might be tempted to say like, "Oh, history is just names and dates," and it's like, no, it's it's just as alive and complex as oh, yeah. today. And, yeah, it's so funny. You if you dig into. Uh, some of the Wikipedia articles and the like, the discussion forums about how things transpired. There are people who want to murder each other. <laughs> um, you get these. It's it's funny. You get some people who it's it's like they it's like they're Roman senators themselves. You know, that's cool. So yeah, so the whole record uh, draws from from this whole crazy wild narrative. Um, it's a beautiful story. It's a horrific story. And, um, the album is about an hour in length and, um, covers a broad spectrum of sounds. You know, um, you have everything from, uh, chamber music to shoegaze and metal and music concrete and, and, um, there's a lot of experimentation and, and, um, with this record being what it was and, and the philosophy behind it, it really set me free to just play. Um, and so this record I would say is, is, you know, one part songwriting, but one, also one part sound art and, and, um, and exploration. And, uh, it's, it, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that it's the, the best, the best piece of work I've ever made uh, to date. And I have one more mis- mixing session to do until it's finished. And then it'll, I'm going to send it off to get mastered. And then it will be released by Raw Paw Records in Austin, Texas in the fall of 2015 is what's looking most likely. We're not married to the date, mm-hmm. to any to any date specifically just yet, but that is looking how it's fitting into the the schedule of releases for them. So, Um, and I'm interested in what you brought up about the the mix of songwriting and sound art, because I think being a musician today, you're kind of inevitably, um, it's, it's different than in the earlier 20th century where recording was really about capturing a single live performance. It was gather the requisite pieces in the room, set up some mics and do your thing and we're done. And, Nowadays, it's like inextricably intertwined with software and, and the process. Um, I think for a lot of musicians, writing is also married to technology, and it's not it's not this isolated thing. And is, has it been like that for this project? I mean, it sounds like it from your your tour and using all sorts of different modalities for different parts of the production. Was the technology just as much part of the process as certainly? You know, um, it's. It's it's been software actually has had a lot to do with why this record has taken so long because the majority of the work has been happening in post. Um, also, I've just been 
Oh, the original point, I'm sorry, I'm going to backpedal a little bit. The original point that I was talking about um, with the um, the degrees of separation between what I'm saying and what actually happened, um, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted, I wanted to enact that in the process of making the record by creating a version of a song viewing how it was viewing the the product's strengths and weaknesses and then just wiping the slate completely clean each and redoing it um so there are only a few moments from that original recording that exist on the record like literally just Mm -hmm. a sprinkling um, it's just a ghost in the background. Yeah, exactly. And and I have I have for just about every song in the record, there have been at least three recording sessions where I started from scratch. Um, so now I I actually have it, there's a backlog of of recordings and versions of these songs, and some of them in some instances like ten versions, you know, um, and. And that, that was my initial, that was the initial thing that I was, I was getting at was that the record that you're listening to now actually is like, you know, roughly between like three and 10 degrees of separation of the initial experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's another sort of philosophical, um, or uh, a technical in other people's minds and hands interacting with it too. And oh yeah. It's like their own storytellers. Oh yeah. This, this, I mean, and that's another, that's another tactic that was employed. Um, Hannibal didn't believe in, um, micromanaging every aspect of his military, which he couldn't have done anyway, probably because his army was made up entirely of, um, mercenaries essentially he had an army comprised of everybody in the mediterranean who had a chip on their shoulder with rome so he had gauls celts iberians celt iberians spaniards numidians north africans uh greeks from all the different sects of greece um sicilians defected italians um I mean, you, you come all it. who are weary. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> come all who are buff and weary. Yeah. And, uh, so he had this polyglot army that didn't even speak the same language and they all had their own strengths and weaknesses and, and Almost he was like a herd immunity of different right. styles. And yeah. Backgrounds. I mean, he, he was afforded the opportunity to consistently improvise and exploit their strengths and weaknesses and adapt and change to whatever one style the Romans were employing. Um, and a big part of that too, was that he would basically give, um, his different, uh, you know, officers, directions you know this is the primary goal this is the objective how you achieve that objective is entirely up to you and so a number of these recording sessions i essentially sought out the people who i thought were the best suited to play whatever instrument or whatever musical Mm -hmm. style and i would say this is what i'm doing and this is what i need you to achieve but how you get there is entirely up to you. Now there there were instances when I had like a specific line and I'd say I want you to play this line, but that 
more often than not was in addition to that direction. Mm-hmm. And does this come naturally to you to sort of uh, delegate control to someone else over a piece? Or um, in the past, have it been more like, no, I kind of want to oversee every corner of my music projects? And <laughs> I would say, well, the short answer is yes. It is. It is over the past three years. It, that was a, a new approach that I had previously been unfamiliar with because I used to direct a, a very large ensemble where mm-hmm. I pretty much was you know clinging to it and and telling everybody pretty much exactly what to do and that music is good but this music has way more like freedom and life and spontaneity and magic in it and I, mm. and I think that's because people you know like when when you're when you're making choices and you're you two are informing a composition there's a sense of authorship you know and and uh and you care more. I was going to relate it almost to filmmaking because to make a film, you need it. You need an army, mm-hmm. and uh, totally. people like to give like the director and maybe the screenwriter like, and in some situations, I'd say an inordinate amount of credit. Maybe it varies film to film, but really, you have a you have lighting artists, you have makeup, you have costume, oh, you have yeah. an entire army that are responsible for the end product just as much. And totally. it's, it's, this is sounding similar to that, that ballpark where it's like, yeah, we, we give Scorsese credit, but it's like he had an army and, you know. Oh, yeah. Actually, I, I <laughs> while I've been here in town, I've watched The Fifth Element twice. Oh, that's um, a great film. I just, I love that movie. Um, I have some qualms with it, um, in terms of like, from like a feminist perspective and, and such. Um, but, uh, from the guy who went on to write taken, <laughs> right. Oh my God. Oh. It's a, spe- but the fifth element is a spectacular looking film and the soundtrack is, is incredible and it's really humorous and, um, you know, it's, it's different from other sci-fi films because it's, um, you know, it's so bright and, and, uh, mo- most sci-fi films are really dark and bleak. Um, but and anyways, I, I got onto the Wikipedia page and and was just reading everything about it and reading about you know the costume designer and and you know that individual like really made that film you know and the and the comic book artists who were responsible for designing all the sets mm-hmm. you know um, I mean yeah that that film is way more than just Luc Besson mm-hmm. um, and you know. Uh, the the actors do a great job too. I mean, Ruby Rod is one of like the most like amazing comedic performances ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, um, yeah, like like you said, it it, it takes a village, it takes an <laughs> army. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, I do want to. Is there anything else you'd like to tie up this Hannibal bow with? I do want to talk about some of your other projects. Sure, sure. Um, let me think. I pretty much talked about all of the or the the main philosophies behind making the record. Um, I have sort of cleansed my palate and am interested in writing songs that aren't based on a prescribed narrative. I'm actually writing songs. Uh, I'm I'm writing love songs again. Um, I, this, I'm working on a on a new record right now called Penguin, which is named after my childhood stuffed animal, which is this little blue bathtub penguin with a pink tie. Um, 
for no other reason than I just think the name sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, it's a total departure from being married to Did intent. Just drop the N off a penguin? Exactly. Or? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I'm writing all of these songs about like fun and sex and good times on drugs and, uh, vacations and, and just feeling good just for the sake of, it's a total departure yeah, from a little this. less self-immolation. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a little, oh, that's cool. um, and all of the songs are from a, a feminine perspective too. All of the, all of the songs will be sung, uh, by a woman. Um, and I'm actually only going to play a little bit of guitar on the record and everything else is going to be, uh, pretty much like hired guns. So yeah, I, I got this whole like heavy, dark, crazy thing out of my system. And now I'm totally stoked to be writing about (laughs) things that are really light and fun. It's good to have some variety. And I think uh, some of the other projects you're involved in will speak to that really well. And so I did want to bring up this Meow Wolf art complex that you're involved with. So um, a little background. So this was a Kickstarter campaign in collaboration with Meow Wolf and George R.R. Martin. Mm -hmm. And to fund and then set up uh, an art complex and specifically to have a, a permanent installation of this thing called the House of Eternal Return. Right. So uh, tell us a little about this. Sure, sure. So um, I guess just to give a little history about Meow Wolf, um, they have been around for seven years now, I believe. And uh, we were all living in Santa Fe together at the time. Um, and I was preoccupied with a different musical project, uh, when they started generating work and subsequently they're so imaginative and are really incredible artists and, and have this really unique and interesting vision and have, you know, over the past seven years been transforming spaces into these lavish, wild, otherworldly, um, interactive and immersive installations. Yeah, and, and they're, so, they're past uh, famous for the Do Return, which is an interdimensional ship yeah, full of interactive. Yeah, like a 70-foot-long, like three-story ship that travels through space and time that you were able to walk through and, and up onto the, the deck. And the ship was surrounded by this extraterrestrial world and landscape with jellyfish floating in the sky and weird black holes that you could put your head into and like a mm-hmm. cave system that you could navigate. And, um, needless to say, they were always making the most interesting spaces to perform in, in Santa Fe. And I wound up getting involved with them in 2013 when they came down to San Antonio, Texas, where I, uh, grew up, um, to do an installation and I was, and, and I, I live the majority of the time in Austin, Texas. And so I decided just to come down and lend a hand and, um, helped out with, uh, installing the sound systems and running cable and stuff much more sort of like as a, as a technical support. And then I got in after that, I, I, I pretty much joined the ranks, um, to, help with this show in Chicago at the Thomas Robertello gallery where I, uh, built these touch sensitive crystals that as you move through the space and touch them, they would trigger music to play from a hidden speaker nearest that crystal and everything was in D major. So it created a larger composition in D major. Um, and, and I also had like a static piece that was playing throughout, uh, also in D major. So I was responsible for the soundscape and then I, you know, uh, 
had my incredible failure with my abode piano in addition to that. <laughs> so that was about a 50, 50 success for me at that show. But, um, uh, over, over time, uh, meow wolf has generated a ton of excitement and interest in the, um, national and international art community and has been as you know the, the work has been reviewed really handsomely by you know the guardian and hyperallergic and the chicago tribune um modern painter and another resident of santa fe new mexico happens to be george rr R. martin and obviously he's very interested in creating really interesting right. alternate universes <laughs> Uh, with, you know, uh, fanciful narratives. And so, um, a couple of the cats from Meow Wolf approached him with this idea for this permanent installation and he loved it. And, um, yeah, a couple months ago signed the lease on a building that used to be the old bowling alley in Santa Fe. It's a 30,000 square foot building. I saw like the big team picture. They're holding some bowling uh-huh. pins. <laughs> Strike. <laughs> um, that's how it felt anyway. Um, and so, yeah, right now everybody's sort of getting their ducks in a row and come June we will begin production and um, we're hoping to finish in September and I'm going to be working with a team of sound artists uh, under the direction of this fantastic um, uh, musician named Ben Wright, plays in this really wonderful ensemble called D Numbers. And um, he's going to be delegating essentially responsibilities for the soundscapes for this all of the different environments because the narrative for the piece is you go into this Victorian household, literally you go into a Victorian house and um, this house was once inhabited by this family of scientists who had developed a way to break space and time. And once that moment happened, they were sort of scattered throughout space and time. And so you go and you open things like the fridge or a closet or the pantry, or you lift a toilet seat, you look Mm -hmm. under the bed and then there's a portal to another world. So like you like walk into this blinding light, you know, in the refrigerator and you walk past like dangling chicken and salads and sandwich cheeses. And, and all of a sudden you find your, all of a sudden you find yourself in like a jungle, you know, with tree houses. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, like you open the toilet and go down this ladder and you find yourself in this futuristic spa inhabited mm-hmm. by cavemen, you know, or you go through this closet and you go into this like interdimensional portal through time and space and you're like engulfed in starlight. Um, so, so you have this labyrinth esque world of immersive, interactive installation art. And so Ben is going to be delegating the responsibilities to me and, and, um, my friends Paul and Brian. Uh, and, and, you know, there's going to be a lot of crossover. Um, right. uh, but we're all going to be essentially designing these sounds, you know, music and, and, uh, and aural textures and, and things. Um, and then in addition to that, I'll just be like a, a part of the general help, like building things. Cause I have a background in construction and stuff. And 
I'm also bringing my bowed piano. Uh, they're coming to pick me and the piano up in about a week, and that'll be uh, part of the permanent installation down there as well. That's very exciting. And I think it's an amazing example of just the collaboration of all different corners of, of art and effort and, and skill. And so you have architecture, you have sound and music, you have um, all kinds of art kind of coming together for, for this vision. And it kind of speaks to me of a, an aesthetic of, of play and fun and kind of thinking about um, what is the role of, of fun and play in, in society and culture and what kind of dialogue it, it can bring to um, a culture. And um, so here's this, I mean, it just seems like a Victorian house already is like, you could do so much with just that concept of oh, like, yeah. what are you saying about modern day versus, you know, how we've developed and where our Western roots, but then you, you can pull in all these other contexts into the space. Yeah. 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 <laughs> There's a lot going on. <laughs> There's a lot going on. And it can be slightly dizzying at times, but mostly it just is, uh, an, it feels just like a huge, incredible dream, you know? Have you had a chance to check out the Mark Mothersbaugh exhibit at the MCA? Yeah. Uh, a part of my residency at Platform has been. Um, has been teaching workshops with kids because um, that's a big part of what they do do here is they uh, they team artists up with um, underserved youth and um, I the workshops that I taught were primarily about sound art and installation art and how to sort of marry the two and uh, when I heard about uh, myopia. Uh, Mark Mother ba- Mark Mother's Boss. I wanted them to see his body of work, specifically his automated instruments. Mm-hmm. And so we went. And we spent like a whole afternoon there, and um, and they were like, "This is so weird. <laughs> it's so weird." It's like I know, I love it. I mean, that's the whole Devo aesthetic. Is anything but normal is kind of one of their right. mantras. So yeah, the very sort of like androgynous um, yeah. obsession with like sexuality and food and um and i like how it was like mirrored like the the car oh, butts yeah. or the yeah yeah that 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 was all really really cool that whole series of photography is really interesting yeah i, I mean i just thought of it because of your your bowed piano reminded me of his his bird whistle contraption and they have it playing throughout the exhibit and you can actually see it functioning and it's yeah i i i cried <laughs> I was so so happy to just stand in that room and and wait for the the pieces because there's like five minutes between each piece mm-hmm. and I just yeah I, I I spent probably half my time just hanging out in that room. Um, Mark, if you're listening, congratulations. <laughs> and he was I mean he's from he grew up in Akron, Ohio, and I grew up in Ohio, so I have this like irrational bond of like he's an Ohio guy, oh, yeah. <laughs> but like. <laughs> Something about that, that aesthetic of coming out of like, you know, Kent State shooting and like sort of like a, this dull, destroyed, modern right. world where there's no more optimism like the beginning of the century and maybe science isn't going to save us either. And so it's like, what do we do now? Well, you get weird and you enjoy your life for what it is. Totally. And- <laughs> yeah. You take the junk that's around you and you turn it into a beautiful instrument. Yeah. So. I want to thank you so much for coming on the pseudo show. Oh yeah. Cole. Thank you for having me. And uh, people can find your stuff. I don't know if there's a, a certain website that's best. Colbywilson.com. 
is one yeah, space. I do a half decent job of keeping <laughs> that updated. Um, the, uh, the, the best place to, to stay up to date on the events that are the, you know, the Hannibal record and, and the Meow Wolf stuff, really the, the best place to go is to meowwolf.com and rawpawatx.com. Uh, and I do intermittently post like weird EPs and sound art pieces and stuff to my band camp. Um, fortunately, I'm the only Cole B. Wilson on the internet. So if you Google <laughs> well, me, nice. like my, yeah, my website comes up and my band camp and, um, March 20th, um, which I think is when this is mm-hmm. going to broadcast, um, is my birthday. And I will be releasing an EP of compositions on my Bode piano in addition to a sampler pack of one shots of the notes and major and minor chords so that if you're an electronic artist or a producer or a sound artist and you want to use those sounds, um, both the compositional EP and the um, sampler pack will be uh, for download, sliding scale, whatever you want to donate, um, because I'm going to be traveling for a bit until um, the Meow Wolf install kicks up in June. So I've got some time to kill. So um, Yeah, so we'll have links to all this stuff in the show yeah. notes, which you can check out at sunriserobot.net slash pseudoshow slash 18. So we'll link out to all these things, to the Meow Wolf, to the band camp. So definitely check that out. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me, Mike. I appreciate it. Don't let that feeling get